Greetings, this is Wolf in Tune, and I am Richard Wolfie Wolf, the Wolf in Wolf in Tune. And today we're talking to music producer, rapper, and YouTuber, Curtis King. Curtis makes videos about music production and mental health for his YouTube channel, Curtis King TV. His production credits include artists such as Kendrick Lamar, Absol and E-40, and companies like MTV, VH1, and Levi's. As a recording artist, he's charted as high as number four on the hip-hop iTunes charts for two times. He's also the author of the book, The Prosperous Hip-Hop Producer. Now, Curtis, before we start, I just got to say that I'm really grateful that my former student and intern, James Leno, connected us because I really respect what you do. You not only give great shop talk to producers and whoever else might be interested in making records... But you get into the searing issues of mental health and coping strategies for people in music. And you talk about mindfulness and meditation and even flow states. So I got to say, Curtis, I'm really, really happy that we connected and that you've agreed to have this discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And likewise, I mean, we had a, a really good warm up conversation that I, you know, both educated me on all the work that you're doing. So. Um, for somebody that, that is uh, definitely an OG in the game, it, it means a lot to, uh, to have that praise. But, yeah, I, I, my passion, first and foremost, in all of this is music. Um, secondary is to uh, I enjoy helping people. I enjoy helping them in ways that is suitable for where they're at and not necessarily just the way that I want to help them, right? We get people mm. sometimes that say uh, things like, I'll pray for you. And sometimes the things that I feel like, you know, not to start off too heavy, but it feels like sometimes the things that people pray for are what they think would be best for you instead of uh, what the man upstairs may feel like is best in that situation as a learning lesson and as a progressive way to move forward. And so the type of help that I give is first, and I'm sure we'll get into it, but identifying with who I was when I first started up and coming and, and getting into this and understanding my pain points and the things that I went through that I wish someone spoke to. But that is definitely the foundation of my work. Yeah, it's so important. People are attracted to look at, how do I make a better record? And how can I get my music to more people? And how can I make money? And all those things are really important. And mm -hmm. people gravitate to learning those things. But how do you live your life as a producer? How do you cope with the pressures of being in the music business on a day-to-day -day basis is really the foundation of who you are and who you will be, your career and your inner life and your life as a whole. So that you're addressing this stuff is really important. But before we get too deep, uh, speaking about the subjects that producers, uh, up-and-coming producers want to know, if I want to be a producer in hip-hop right now, what should my goals be? It's a good question. I think it really comes down to having a short-term and a long-term vision at the same time. So short-term, many folks who say they want to get into music, I look at it no different than how you would view dating or how you would view marriage. For me, m music is just as natural of a process when you're first uh, dating someone, you know, because what are you trying to figure out? You're trying to 
you know, maybe there was something that attracted you about the other individual and uh, something about their intellect that attracted you. And you say, you know what, I want to get to know this person a little bit more. And the same way we may see someone making music or we may hear music. For me, that was listening to uh, singers like Sade or listening to a singer named Erica Badu or Jill Scott. That was my first really huge introduction into falling in love, like absolute love with music and uh, really seeing it as a medicine, aud- you know, audible medicine, auditory medicine for uh, those that that need it. And I surely needed it. And it provided that. And that alone became, uh, you know, an obsession to where I say, you know, one day I want to figure out how to do this myself to, you know, both be therapeutic for my own emotions, but also for other people. And so I think getting started now, we producers must get used to the concept of dating. And sometimes some people in, in life date for years. You know, you're not fully committed. You know, if you're working a job right now and you're like, oh, I would love to work on this full time. To me, that means, you know, you're in a relationship. Maybe you bought the equipment. Maybe you bought, um, you know, a dog of your choice, but you're not quite all the way committed. Right. And then the day that you say, OK, I quit my job. I'm going full force. Then you're in a marriage. Well, just like human beings do in relationships and marriages, some people rush into it way too fast without falling in love. And, and, and um, you know, I just probably sound so old school to the younger listeners, but falling in love with the dating process. And it's no different from music. I had to fall in love with music, feel the music change the temperature of a room that I'm in. And um, that happened very organically. And so that's my suggestion to producers is first get the most out of it as a hobby before you try to monetize it. Mm-hmm. Because if you try to monetize it within your first few months and you're just getting used to it, it's almost like getting married to somebody you went out with for a few dates. Um, you're, you're setting yourself up for a dysfunctional relationship. No matter how successful you become financially, um, you know, no matter how many opportunities come, if it's not time, it's not time. And, uh, you know, it took me years. I'm 35 years old now. It took me years to realize how important it is to establish a solid foundation in the beginning with music. You know, that's really striking to me because this is a relatively new development as a problem for producers. Because when I started out as being a producer, it took a long time to get into a studio, to learn how to use a studio, Mm -hmm. to be able to afford studio time. You didn't have that problem of trying to monetize. You had a long way to go before you could even try and monetize. You know what I mean? And now, I guess, because it's so much more accessible, the equipment is more accessible, it's easier to to produce stuff, people are going in and and in a month or two think, oh, I I did this great track, I I programmed this great beat, so let's go sell it. Uh, That's that's a new development there. That's interesting. Well, and, and, and the interesting thing about it is that, you know, obviously we have to take responsibilities for the decisions that we jump to too fast. But the dynamic of what it means to be an online music producer, that used to be like a bad word to producers that are in the traditional industry, you know, working with artists in person and, you know, really don't have too much of an online presence they really are primarily in the traditional way of being a record producer, being in a studio with artists and building with them and um, creating networking opportunities face to face. And so for the most part, it's always looked at the online producer was the, the guy from the outside looking in that wanted to get into the industry. But now when you have folks that 
have created businesses online uh, without an attachment to the industry that are creating six-figure businesses. You're talking about, um, you know, young guys that are, you know, creating a YouTube income that rivals what their parents are making. Uh, just from making videos on YouTube, it, it's, it is a different, different beast. But at the same time, there are people now, because they moved into this position, that, um, you know, they, they become more marketers than actual producers. And that's, that's good and bad, because what it does is that it pushes e-commerce on 16, 17-year-olds who already have enough pressures um, and so much of their lives are going to change in, in their 20s and their early 20s and uh, very, very drastically. And so to be exposed to that is good. But to feel like within your first year of making music that you need to make money off of it, um, I salute the ambition. But I do think that it creates people that um, are here more so for using music for what it could do for you the fame it could give you, the social media clout that it can give you, instead of creating more people who are in love with this thing and want to advance it to a next to the next level and evolve it and then pass that information on to the next generation. Uh, that's what I feel like, maybe that gives me an opportunity to be the kind of teacher that I am because uh, I, I want them to not get too fast in that because it creates anxiety and all these mental health issues that come along with the pressure of being an entrepreneur at 16, 17. I got a, I got a young man, um, 15, 14 years old, and he's already asking about funnels and click funnels. And it's amazing to see, but also too, I'm like, man, not yet, not yet. Not that he's not ready, but I, I want him to really, really, you know, date a little bit longer, date a little bit longer. What's a click funnel? What is that? So it, it's it's been around for I mean I think at least 10 11 probably a dozen years. Oh, I'm so out of it that it's been oh, no, around. Oh no, it's for okay. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay cuz the producer community just got introduced to it um, as of recent. Oh, okay. I, uh, you know, a business partner that I've done business with, I'm an affiliate for um, it's an individual named Gabe who, you know, he he and his partner Anno both individually made a million dollars off of selling beats online to independent artists. And so they did that without the industry. Um, it's commendable what they did, and, and they're actually teaching this system now uh, to music producers. And the guy that they learned from was uh, another guy named Russell Brunson, or Br Brunson that, um, that is just a marketing genius. He's a sales guy. And so traditional business has already been exposed to this. Tech has already been exposed to this for years, right? A funnel is basically... I explain like that's the best way I can explain it. A funnel is like the little old lady at your Costco that you go in just to go shop for something. And then you smell something coming from her little, you know, her little oven and you smell it and you're like, what is this? And so you walk over to her and she gives you a sample. That would be the equivalent in, a, in an email. Fun uh, excuse me, the equivalent for a producer would be a, we a website or a landing page that says, hey, would you like to get free five beats from me? As an artist, you'd be like, well, of course, it's free. Now, why would I not do that? You put your email in, that's the first part of the funnel. And so basically what it does is it kind of brings you into a rabbit hole of pitching opportunities that are just too good to, to ignore. It's the, it's the equivalent of going to that little old lady at Costco and mm. she says, here's, the, you know, here's this piece of cheese. And you eat it and you're like, okay, that's pretty good. And you start walking around Costco and you're like, you know what? I need to buy this cheese because I'm going to crave this. And you go back. And then she says, hey, if you buy one of these now, you can get another one for free. All of a sudden, you went and 
purchase double something that you weren't even thinking about before you were presented with it. Um, and so, of course, you got folks who understand it from that perspective and then some folks, rightfully so, who are like hesitant because it feels too markety. It doesn't feel um, natural to us as producers and music creators. And so as this gets created and as this gets presented, it, it brings a lot of good, but it also brings a lot of uh, other stuff that I think that um, I'm realizing the more that I look at it from a bigger picture standpoint and that, you know, some people are exposed to it and realize that they're more of a marketer than they are a music producer. And that's OK. You know, maybe it took that route for them to get there and go to their ultimate passion. But for me, I'm a music producer. I, I, I am whatever you want to call it, a beat maker. Mm -hmm. I enjoy the process more than anything else about this. If I don't have an opportunity to create, it doesn't matter what business opportunities come to me at some point in time. Um, something's going to be compromised if I don't have the uh, the balance in my ecosystem of creativity and business. Wow. So it brings a, a lot of things up to my mind when you're talking about this. Uh, back to the old lady at Costco, these producers that are offering beats for free, it's mm -hmm. non-exclusive, right? They can offer the same beat for 50 or 500 different people, right? Is Absolutely. That right? It's non-exclusive. And on top of this, this is kind of a newer thing in that the artist who is getting the five free beats in the, the world of selling beats online, beats are, like you said, distributed both exclusively and non-exclusively. And when they're non-exclusive, there are certain license terms based upon what tier that you bought. So you can get a beat that normally would cost between $500 and $1,000 uh, to purchase flat-out exclusive rights. Now you can basically lease that for 30 bucks, and it gives you a one-year lease. And there's certain terms, like you can only stream it to a certain amount of streams before you have to renegotiate the terms. And so what producers are doing now is that they're offering those five free beats uh, for free for profit. So the artist is able to make money off of these free beats uh, without having to make any kind of splits with the producer. That's another controversial thing that's happening because, you know, these these producers are seeing their their work and they're saying, you know, why would I just give it away for free? And But the nature of the way that consumers in general, not just artists who buy beats, consumers in general are used to getting so much more for so little. Think about Netflix. You know, there's a reason why Blockbuster is <laughs> the last Blockbuster location in, in America is now an Airbnb so that you can go live the nostalgia of the 90s. Um, that's why that business doesn't exist anymore. They had an opportunity to buy Netflix, but Netflix said, you know, they denied Netflix. But look, now you can get for $9.99 or $12.99, whatever it is, access to more movies than you can watch in a month. And mm -hmm. that's now kind of being shifted over into our industry and many different industries that are being affected by it. It's just that, you know, a lot of folks have a, a lot of producers have a big issue separating their uh, sort of their morals and their and their pride and their, their, their general respect for their music and the business of their music. And uh, I'm, I'm no different. Uh, this was something that I had to really, you know, find somewhat of a, a middle ground on. And uh, I mean, it's it's inevitably why I stopped selling beats from being completely transparent. But you started out. I don't know about started it out, but as you're referring here, you did sell beats and did very well at it for a while. Absolutely, right? absolutely. So yeah. orig originally, you know, I made my name locally by working with um, 
you know, very young Kendrick Lamar, an artist that also is part of the same label named Ab Soul. Really? You uh, work with those guys? I work with Ab Soul, Kendrick Lamar. Um, wow. Yeah, I, I had an opportunity very early. Top Dog? Uh, you were Top hooked? Dog, T TDE. Yeah, yeah I, I, I literally, I'm telling you, I was over there for a, a lot of special moments um, before the world knew who Kendrick Lamar was. Mm -hmm. um, I was a guy that lived not too far away from their studio that would come in there. And, um, you know, Abso, I knew him on a more personal level. He's one of the first artists, artists that I worked with as a producer. Mm -hmm. And I remember the day that he got signed to TDE and just how excited he was. He got his tattoo and all that. And because I had invested so much time with him for free, uh, he, he told me, he said, hey, give me a CD full of your beats and I'll make sure that it floats around the studio at that time. J-Rock was one of the biggest artists on there, the biggest mm -hmm. artist. Right. Um, this was before Schoolboy Q was even a right. part of TDE. Right. And Absol was like my my foot in that door. And he had some nice music, by the way. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. So oh, nice jazz-inflected, R&B-inflected stuff. So important. And, and and I'm I'm honored to be a part of that, the first version of what that looked like. And so with Absol. He brought that CD over to TDE, and the very first beat that TDE heard Schoolboy Q rap over to audition to be a part of TDE was off of that CD. And so there's so many moments in there that, that uh, you know, it was a terrible beat. I mean, that's a whole other story in itself. It was a terrible <laughs> beat, and it was, it, was, it was supposedly supposed to be for J-Rock. That's what I had in mind. But, you know, it, it was that was kind of my introduction, and then it, it, it gave me moments like where I'm making beats for Kendrick Lamar, Around the same time, he was a spectator of the Double XL freshman and watching J. Cole and saying, one day I'm going to be a Double XL freshman. Now he's one of the biggest artists oh, yeah. in, you know, in the world. Oh, yeah. But being a part of that early stage let me see what it looks like to, uh, to create a dynasty, what it looks like. Um, a little, another little tidbit before, I know you want to get to, the, to another part of that, but is that I made myself make myself available to, to, to them like there's a lot of folks that have their own pride issues and they feel like I'm a producer that's all I do I was a producer that very in the very beginning I knew how to do graphic design to a certain degree mm -hmm. I knew how to do video editing because nobody would work with me I just wasn't good enough to, to a lot of folks and so I had to figure it out on my own so because I did graphic design it gave me the opportunity to not only have on Absol's second album Long Term 2 I produced the title track and I created the, the album cover and so that transition into me eventually going into the industry figuring out it wasn't for me and then I said you know what I want to find a way to have my own independence I want to find a way to generate my own income from home because I don't like late night studio sessions I don't like sitting in there with artists and you know helping them paint their picture when I feel like I have a picture I have a story that I want to tell seeing artists not TDE but seeing artists that I work with want me to be a producer that's already out like could you make a beat like this person could you make something like dr dre could you make that didn't drive me i wanted to make my own music and so that led me to selling beats online i mean it's, it's fast forwarding the story but I, I i sold beats online and um had a had a guy that that was doing really well that helped me and uh for the first few years you know the first year i generated uh, six figures, and then the next year did the same thing, and and it became my primary source of income, and it changed my life. But uh, you know, as we as we'll go on, you know, you'll realize why, you know, the the money just wasn't enough. There had to be more to why I started to do this thing called music. 
So what do you have now that's better than selling beats online? Happiness. <laughs> Happiness, <laughs> peace of mind, freedom, the flexibility, the flexibility to say, I don't want to work on music today. I want to go take my son outside, even though it's 105, and turn the air mister on and watch him run away, run back and forth through the, through the backyard. Uh, the fact that we have a home and not even, you know, two year and a half, two years ago, we were in a 700 square foot apartment, my wife and my and, and, and my baby boy, because I was I was transitioning from another relationship. I was kind of rebuilding my whole life. I was in this very tiny apartment and uh, it was expensive. You know, it was a tiny because I'm still in California, <laughs> but uh, I was trying to figure it out. And then I'm, I ended up meeting who will become my wife, you know, uh, my best friend and transitioning from that 700 square foot apartment where I joked that I could literally touch the the bathroom floor in the kitchen at the same time um, to now we're in this humongous home. And uh, it, it shows me uh, the, the, the power of faith, the power of God, the power of believing in something. And, uh, and then also too, you know, what was ironic about it was that then my primary source of income shifted from just selling beats to now getting into YouTube. And I didn't plan on that. I just wanted to do YouTube to help producers because I felt like there wasn't the kind of help that I could give. And um, now I have happiness. I, that's, that's, that's really what I say. Happiness and fulfillment, which, you know, uh, on a spiritual level, and I learned this from Tony Robbins, you know, we have six needs as human beings. One, we have a need for certainty, another need for uncertainty, a need for significance, a need for love. Those are primal needs that all of us need, right? Um, we can find three of those needs and they'll give us short-term, you know, excitement, but not necessarily happiness and fulfillment. We have to put into the mix one of our two spiritual needs, which are growth and contribution. Mm-hmm. And so when I contribute to a community that's bigger than just my own goals, that brings me happiness and fulfillment. When I am constantly growing and seeing my numbers grow and seeing myself grow as a human being first on a spiritual level, on a, on a physical level, because I exercise, anytime you mix any of those two or, and one of those other primal needs, you have an addiction, right? That same addiction can drive you into drugs, but... The drug one would be a need for certainty. If I take this drug, I'm going to have a certain reaction. I feel significant when I bring this money to this drug dealer and they're going to give me what I want. Also, you can get love and affection from people who come visit you because you almost OD. Um, That can drive a terrible addiction. On the flip side, if I'm growing, contributing, and I feel significant for doing it, it gives me my primal and my spiritual needs. Understanding that, it flipped everything for me. Because then I realized I need to stop pursuing what everybody else, every other producer is pursuing if I really want to have, and we talked about that, a, a happiness and a state of mind that just won't leave. And it's been with me ever since. That is so true. I got to say, one of the most mind-blowing answers to a question I've ever asked. So what I'm sorry if it's a bit long-winded. <laughs> I'm sorry it's a bit long-winded, but I had to get that all out because my brain... <laughs> I, I went to a uh, this early morning. I went to a coffee sipping um, at an establishment near me, and uh, yeah, I, my energy's been ultra high today. So I'm, I'm trying to like slow nah, myself down, but my, my mind is moving so fast. No, it's beautiful. I mean, what do you have now? And the answer is happiness. Yes. I mean, that's uh, that's classic. That's that was that was a surprise. Um, <laughs> so. Um, 
You talk about YouTube, and I'm going to bring you down to earth, and then we'll get, we'll go up back up to spiritual levels too. Cool. But uh, so so in other words, YouTube is your main business right now. That's your main occupation. Uh, um, it was, it was. I actually, I mean, one thing that I have no problem doing is pivoting. Is pivoting and 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 figuring out. Okay, is this is this? Do I imagine myself doing this in 20 years? No, I don't imagine myself being on YouTube and saying rappers and music producers, listen to the advice that I have for you. Maybe, maybe not, maybe not in the same capacity, but I just see myself doing something different. Um, and I try to think of that and keep that perspective in it. I always try to think of um, the the old ver old older version of Curtis King, the 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 85 year old version of myself. Uh, God willing that I can live that long. I want to see that person's face. Is that person's face angry and bitter about the work that I didn't do now? Or are they thankful and grateful to see the younger me and say, thank you for making those sacrifices. Thank you for paying attention to your mental health. Thank you for uh, 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 taking care of your body. Thank you for spending that time with your son because you're the reason I have a smile on my 85 year old face. That's what I'm always trying to keep the perspective of. And so um, that's why like now I have no problem pivoting. Sometimes it's a double-edged sword because, uh, somebody once called me an earth scorcher and that when I'm ready to move on, I will burn everything down to do it. And sometimes it's not the most wisest business decision. Uh, as uh, you know, I guess some people say that's a trait of, a, of, of an Aquarius. Um, I, you know, I don't know, but I, I just know that that's part of my personality and that when my mind pivots, it goes a thousand percent in that direction right or wrong. Uh, and that's something that the older I get, the more I'm trying to hone and, and, uh, and, and just observe, just observe what's going on without making a split second decision, because that's part of my success is having the ability to have a, a, a bias towards action. But sometimes you need to just observe, not think about it, not obsess, just observe. And I'm learning the more I get into mindfulness, uh -huh. the more I realize how much is that, how important that is. Yeah, I, I was just going to say when you talk about being a spectator, uh, observing, being the watcher, or yes, as, oh as Ajahn Shah said, <laughs> being the one who knows. Uh, that's the essence of mindfulness: is to observe what's happening without getting stuck in it, without getting mm -hmm. all entangled in it in a, in a neutral way. So well, that's what you're describing as, as being a spectator, observing. But Absolutely. you had your, you got to this point after a lot of struggles. In my understanding, you have, you had some mental health issues that you had to overcome. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So can you talk a little bit about that? I remember something that struck me. I heard one of your podcasts, and you talk about the two sides of depression. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? Vaguely, vaguely. Uh, do you remember just a little bit more context? And I'll take it from there. It was with... I know you're kind of leading me into it, but I want to make sure that I, I talk exactly about what I was talking about. Well, I think depression was one of the issues that you really had to struggle with. Mm -hmm. And that through that struggle, there was a positive outcome. Okay. So I, I can give you context because, I mean, I guess my, my first reaction when you said, uh, you know, you had a, a, a breakdown. The first <laughs> reaction I had was, which one? There's <laughs> 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 many along the journey, but... Uh, I think the one that speaks the biggest volumes, because even even in my book, you know, um, the prosperous hip hop producer, there's so many moments where I show you those low moments. And I wanted to tell you the ugly details of it so that as a producer, you realize I'm not alone. 
because we never are. Whatever we're going through, somebody guaranteed in their own shape or form is going through it. If you really look at the 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 general umbrella of what's going on there, disappointment, fear, we've all experienced it. But the most recent moment, I call it my my quarantine before the quarantine. Mm. It was in November or October actually of last year. November's when it really reached its peak. But I went through a time where, you know, I had a private community that I was dedicating every single day of pretty much of my life. Like I, I would go into this and uh, I would basically sit with a room full of music producers. The numbers would vary every single day. And I would teach them a new skill set that I had. Um, we had a mental health Monday that we brought a, a, a licensed therapist into. We had Tuesdays that were dedicated to marketing. Wednesdays were like songwriter workshops. Thursdays were FL Studio producer Thursdays. Fridays were just beginners Q&As. And I did this, you know, for up to 330 hours, almost 13 or 14 full days that you could sit down and watch without taking a break. The amount of content that was generated and the questions that were answered. I did PowerPoints. I did pretty much everything that you would do as an instructor. And so my body burnt out. My body burnt out and I could not do it anymore. Uh, that's when I learned about a term that I never heard before, which was, um, uh, what is what is the term? Exhaustion. No, no, compassion fatigue. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was, it was definitely exhaustion. Don't, <laughs> don't get me wrong. That was involved in it. You, you're spot on with that. But compassion fatigue is something that, happens to nurses when they take on so many, because they, 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 that's what makes the nurses so great at what they do. They physically take on mm -hmm. what you're going through in order to empathize with you and say, I know it hurts. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, here, here, here's something that's going to help you, but prop your foot up. I'll get you an extra pillow. Like that mm -hmm. is a great attribute to have. But when you push the limits of that, like I did, and I was in these workshops every day, sometimes four or five, six hours, when you do that, you're going to reach compassion fatigue. And I didn't even know that was a thing until, um, you know, it's funny. I went to a masseuse and she told me, uh, you take on a lot of people's problems, don't you? I was like, that was a random thing to say. And I was like, mm -hmm. well, yeah. Um, so my lowest moment came when I told the university, I said, hey, I, I, I need a break. Mentally, I'm breaking down. I'm having my friends that are calling me after seeing me on video and saying, you look like crap. How much water are you drinking? What are you doing? Like you're gonna you're going to kill yourself if you continue at this pace. And I just stopped. I told him I can't do it. But this is my everyday. So I didn't know what my new normal was. Plus, I wasn't making music at all, which was so important to me. Didn't know. Tried to go back to making music. It had been such a long drop-off that I couldn't sit down and 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 just focus on the music. I was overthinking every step of the process, every knob. Mm -hmm. And it got me in a really low place where I was like, what is my life? I'm 35 years old. I started making music at 16, 17. So half of my life has been dedicated to pursuing this as a career. It is finally my career. I have some rewards and the fruits of my labor, but it still doesn't make me happy. What is missing? What is going on? And so in that process, I had to first acknowledge what was going on is that I was falling into a depression because I had no answers. And I felt like there was nobody really to go to that understood all the layers of it um, mm -hmm. because of how unique 
this experience is as an online music producer, entrepreneur, mentor, author. It's just such a unique experience that a lot of the advice I was getting was, oh, sleep it off. Oh, do this. Oh, do that. And so for the first time in my life, I actually sought therapy. And uh, there was there's an app called BetterHelp that allows you to do therapy almost through like FaceTime. But it's an app that you do the, the, the therapy through. And uh, I'll tell you, that therapy was the greatest financial decision I've ever made in my music career. Um, better than any equipment that I ever bought. Mm-hmm. I invested into that. Mm-hmm. And she introduced me to meditation in a way that I never had heard it before. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was the beginning of me tapping into where I'm at now. Uh, between that, meditation led me to guided meditation. Guided meditation led me to the teachings of a spiritual teacher, Jamaican spiritual teacher named Muji. And so there's so many things after that. But that was like, I quarantined myself. I, I, I got away from everybody. Uh, I didn't talk to any of my friends. I didn't want to work with anybody. I social distanced myself before that was a thing. And I really just shut down. I read a lot of books. And uh, I allowed myself to break down to my least common fraction or my least common denominator, whatever you want to call it. And I one by one built myself up again. I journaled. I meditated. I took walks in the morning. I did things that I just I thought I never had time to. And I just made time to do it. And it made a whole difference. It, it saved your life. life, it sounds like. Saved my absolute life because I was ready. I, I was watching TED Talks ready to look into another career. And it was funny because I looked for... Debating a career change is what I tapped into on YouTube, and I found a TED Talk, and I, f- I forget uh, this woman's name, but I, if I ever meet her, I got to give her the biggest hug in the world because she's the one that gave me the gym. Can you imagine what you're doing today in 20 years? And so what I figured out was that it wasn't so much that I couldn't deal with being in that low place. It wasn't like I was panicking. It was just that I was in search of so many answers that I didn't have the answers to for the first time in my life because usually if I want to look for an answer – I'm relentless. I'll look for it. But somewhere between the exhaustion, the compassion fatigue, somewhere between even having some physical ailments like, uh, you know, sciatic nerve issues. I had migraines. I had Mm. uh, neck spasms. I had all these things going on. It was just a compound that was like, yo, God, what are you telling me? And the word I kept hearing was slow down, slow down, Mm -hmm. shut it down, Mm -hmm. including social media. And I just started reading. I started reading. I started meditating. I started really meditating and not meditating because it's the thing to do. But as my my um, my uh, therapist told yeah. me, she said, this is this is strength training for the mind mm-hmm. so that when you are when you are faced with those moments of panic and anxiousness, you have already exercised and you know how to approach it because you've already worked that muscle out. And so uh God bless her because she, she led me down this rabbit hole that um, now I am in the process of uh, changing the way that I teach and what I teach because it's so important to me. It's so true about meditation and facing panic and anxiety and in a physical way. It's not only strength ha- training, mental training. It's it's a physical training too. Somebody said you shouldn't call it mindfulness. It's bodyfulness. You're mm. training your mind and body to work together. Yes. Right. And and to find that sanctuary in yourself, the peace within yourself, the way to slow down, like you say, slow down the physiology, slow down the sympathetic nervous system, slow everything down and be able to cope with where you're at right now. Be okay with it. Be able to see it clearly 
it's a it's like at some point it's like playing a musical instrument your body knows what to do before your mind even knows what to do absolutely and it sounds to me like if i would say that you're extremely lucky to have found therapy and meditation that wouldn't be accurate because it's more than luck you made the effort you weren't afraid of a stigma about therapy and i think it's so important in what you're doing speaking to your audience not to be afraid to get help, to ask for help, to ask for guidance, to look into these practices that can help your mental health. Yes. And I think that's what, what was pioneering about you and, and important is that you, were, you just went for it without hesitation, without being afraid of it and, and not looking cool or whatever the, the stigma might be in the hip-hop world. Well, you, you know what I have to attribute it to, too? And I, and I feel like... This is something that I want feel, I don't want people who are listening to think that it was this only moment that led me to what I'm doing. There were so many things that, you know, one of the biggest decisions financially that I made, and it was an expensive one. It's more expensive than therapy, honestly, which is funny. Um, but I went to this event called Unleash the Power Within by Tony Robbins. And I didn't know what to expect. You know, you see like hordes of people go to something and then they tell you how much it can change your life. And I learned so much in that three and a half days about my body, about what happens when I put myself in motion. And mind you, I had already been listening to uh, speakers like Les Brown. Les Brown's one of my favorite in the world in that I figured this out. You know, they say that your success is determined by the six or seven people that you constantly are around. Well, sometimes I can be a recluse. So I'm around just myself. That can be good. That can be bad because I'm still developing in the process and I'm still hearing the voice, my, my prefrontal cortex, my uh, the decision maker, the, the logical thinker in my mind that is tricking me out of my potential because all it knows is what it knows. And so I had to surround myself, maybe not in a physical sense. I had to surround myself by people that made me change my new normal, my new standard, my new bar. Uh, first on a spiritual level, on a mentality level. So literally days, like almost like 30 days, 40 days in a row sometimes, I would listen to the same Les Brown, Georgia Dome speech to the point where I started talking and I realized it's starting to come through my language. This is my new language. Um, I started consuming, you know, after going to the Tony Robbins event, I started consuming his content and understanding the principles that he shared. And I realized I am surrounded by them. I'm surrounded by the very people that I'm learning by, even more so than my quote unquote friends or people in the industry. And I did that for a very long period of time, maybe an unhealthy amount of time, but it changed. These were the elements that definitely led me to even saying, is therapy for me? And what could that do for my life? So those are important factors for sure. What do you think it is, aside from the physical changes and the ability to just slow down and observe, which those are crucial qualities. Mm -hmm. What else do you think it is about practicing meditation and, and doing therapy that is helpful? It reminds me to be a human being instead of a human doing. It reminds me that there's another part, there's another part of me that exists within me, whether you want to call that the watcher um, uh, our pure self, understanding that there is a part of me that has been here through all my journey that is not changing. Mm -hmm. 
uh, a part of me that doesn't recognize a difference between what freedom is because it is freedom, a part of me that has observed dialogues that have occurred within the mind, but it's, it's just, it just feels like it's all knowing. It just feels like it understands no matter what's going on. Um, realizing that that power or something is there led me to wanting to say, you know what? I want to get more out of this experience that I have as a human being, not just as a producer, as a human being. I want to do the things that other people uh, may have been exposed to, but didn't do anything with. One of those things for me, for example, because I'm talking in really, you know, spiritual sense, but one of those things on a practical level was doing uh, the deprivation tank, the float tank. You know, where you, right. you go into the, right. the, the, the for those sensory who, deprivation. Sensory, exactly. The sensory deprivation tank. And for those who've never experienced it, um, it's a very terrifying idea for some people because they don't spend that much quiet time inside of this box or this pitch black uh, box that you basically are laying on this warm Epsom salt filled water uh, three feet. And you're just laying in there and they're like, what do you do? You, well, you're doing nothing. That's the purpose is that you're in there and you're being, you're just being. Mm-hmm. Whatever that means, I needed to have examples of that. And that's what my meditation does for me is that if I can sit with my thoughts in quiet with the Buddhist called the, monk, the monkey brain, mm-hmm. if I can quiet those thoughts and not even just forcefully quiet them, but just imagine I'm being a cloud and it's just passing. It's just passing. I had a thought. It's a cloud. Let it pass. Forgive myself instead of beating myself up. Let it pass. Mm. Let it pass. That does something. It's it's almost like doing reps in a gym or it's almost right. like wearing ankle weights as an athlete. Right. It's, going to, it's going to give you such a weightlessness when you finally get on the court and you start to jump. You're going to feel like, wow, where's this bounce come from? That's where I feel like when I get anxious still, my anxiety is not cured, right? I it's going to be there. It's good. It's a thorn in my side that I need to remind me the importance of the mindfulness. So I need it. I'm, I make peace with it. I dance with my problems. I don't try to get rid of my problems. I look for higher quality problems. That's where it puts me at is that I feel like I am equipped for whatever comes in my life because life, as we have seen in this year, uh, is is the epitome of unexpected. We don't know what's going to happen or be around the corner. Uh, but I feel like I went through that training in my lowest moment. That training prepared me to uh, get into mindfulness. And then also mindfulness, in a, in a weird way, gives me so much more decisiveness and confidence in saying my favorite word, no. Because I could not do that for the longest part of my career. I could not say no. I said yes to everything. Mm-hmm. Man, I wish mindfulness had done that for me. I'm, I still I have, a tr- have a hard time saying no. You know, you know what helped me, and, and this is very recent. And I just, I just share this because I know you got so many more gems for me. But this is, this is what helped help me in particular. Because I, I still have my moments where I feel like I may say no and feel confidence, but I still feel like ah. I asked my wife, was I wrong? Was I being a little bit cold about that? I read, I read in a book by Mark Manson that says, even when you say yes, you're still saying no to something you really should be doing. Hmm. That's a good way to look at it. That's, never that's, that's true. That. No matter what, you're yeah. saying you're saying no. Yeah. You're just saying no to something that you actually that actually brings your life value. So even when you say yes, you're still saying no. When I heard yeah. that, I was like, bet. 
Easy. Okay. I'll say no. I won't explain myself. I won't try to like coddle the person that I'm talking to. I'll just tell them no. That this that my focus is right. is in another direction. And right. and and if this is somebody who's for the longevity, uh, and it's meant to be, they'll understand that. But if not, it was just a matter of time before we came to that uh, that disagreement. So you were talking about something uh, just a little while ago about a part of you that's been around forever, um, that's all knowing. Would you say, does it feel like it could be an energy field of consciousness that's not you, but that's everything that exists? Absolutely. 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 I, okay, th- this may sound like really, really, for some folks who are, you know, maybe new to it, I know that you'll understand this. But when I got into that, that, that place, and, and maybe it's not even a place, but when I just observed what we're just talking about right now, right. It changed even the way that I water plants, uh-huh. right? As I looked at the plants that I'm watering, I started to, this sounds so weird. I never, I've never verbalized this, but I would look at these trees that I'm watering and I would feel some kind of energy or some kind of life that I was, I was giving some nourishment to. Like I would feel that. And I felt like I would not have been that connected. Like I would feel like even almost sometimes goosebumps to give the, you know, just give the trees a little bit of, little bit of water, right? Mm-hmm. I would feel something and I could not explain that. But I mean, yes, I, I'm a thousand percent believe that, that everything around us is, um, is, is sharing the same energy field. I think it's the reason why, I mean, you know, scientists talk about things like pheromones, uh, that, that women are able to pick up on when somebody means them harm and they're going down an alley or they're going to their, to their parking lot or something like that. They're able to smell the, the pheromones. And not that I don't believe that, but I think that it's deeper than that. I think that we we have the ability to sense an energy shift. There are times where I would get into studio sessions and instantly I would walk into the room and I felt like, oh, this is a draining environment, right? I had a great uh, quote from one of my former managers, very really, really wise man named uh, Salas. And he said, in this life, you're going to meet people who are plugs and people who are outlets. In his sense, he was saying people who are going to want to basically you're going to meet people who are going to either be outlets that give so much energy, like I do that on a regular basis. Um, and then you're going to find people who are out or who are uh, uh, plugs who want to plug into that energy. And all they do is drain. That's their only focus is to drain as much as they can from whoever they work with. Um, they overextend their business relationships. They overextend their collaborations. People walk away from studio sessions feeling drained and have no idea why that is. He said, that's when you got to make sure that you understand the energy of a room. So, yeah, I for sure. That's my long-winded <laughs> way of saying yes, that I, I do believe that. Yeah, and, and that makes such a big difference. And as you said, how you look at everything, basically, not, not only how you look at watering trees, but how you look at everything that you encounter. Mm-hmm. And, and yourself, we're taught to think that ourselves are just encapsulated in this bag of skin. Yes. And then you realize, no, it's like everything inside is outside, in meditation, you turn yourself inside out. There is no inside outside. It's all together. It's all yes. one flow, one stream of energy. And, and yes, you are unique and you have your unique talents and you are right here, right now in this particular time and place. That's true also. But then you see this other side and that's terrifically liberating Yes, um, to absolutely. see that. So what do you think are issues that are specifically trying for people in the hip-hop community that are uh, threatening their mental health or drag on their stability, mental stability? 
Um, you talked about depression. You talked sure. about compassion fatigue. You talked about certain things. You mentioned anxiety. So we know that in the society as a whole, especially right now, but it's always been there uh, in the last couple of decades, uh, a, a very high level of stress and anxiety and right. uh, depression. So that exists in the society as a whole. But what do you think the people that you talk to in the hip-hop community, what do you think are the most pressing issues for them? Well, I, you know, I, I thought about this question when we talked about it earlier uh, off, off the podcast, and I, I realized, you know, I, I try my best not to put, you know, every one of these artists, um, just because of their love of hip-hop, is shared. I try not to put them too much in a box in that they're still having uh, a very wide-ranging and variety of experiences and emotions that uh they're encountering and I, I i it was no more evident to me than when we had our mental health mondays at uh i had a community called curtis king university or curtis king tv was um the name of the university first but when we had our mental health mondays and the uh mental health therapist would come in and basically break down different concepts of the mind concepts of you know dealing with trauma i realized that just because they make the decision to pick up a keyboard or, or computer and a DAW does not stop them from having mental illnesses like, you know, uh, the, the categories such as uh, mood disorders uh, or, or, you know, things like depression and bipolar disorder, anxiety disorders, uh, personality disorders, psychotic disorders, eating disorders. These are like the, the these are things that every human being at some level uh, deals with. And so, I would say the ones that I saw that were more obvious to me might have been the anxiety disorders because of all the pressure they feel to be something, be somebody, uh, the pressure they feel to produce certain results for their family members, the pressure they feel to create 20 years of experiences in two or three years mm. does something to your to your your anxiety. And then also, too, a, a lot of them, you know, especially music producers, are not used to, you know, they chose a profession that allows them to be, you know, uh, an introvert and get paid for it. Like the, the more introverted producers are the ones that produce more product and they get more opportunities a lot of times, or that's how it used to be. Um, right. So they picked a profession that allows them to be that, sit with their music, fall in love with their music, but these things don't always give you what you need to heal those things maybe that happened in your childhood, um, just things you're not dealing with on an anxiety level. And so when you actually meet some of these producers, you know, because I've done speaking engagements, sometimes they're a mess. They don't know how to formulate ideas together or how to express what they're feeling. They're just excited and they're, they, they want to express themselves, but that's just not a lot of their nature. So I think that's the most common one is the anxiety disorders. Uh Definitely, you meet a lot of personality disorders uh, just by the way that business is operated sometimes. I have to take into consideration. Sometimes I get like I had a, I had a gentleman that hit me up. I've never met him in my life. Um, I'm assuming he's a YouTube subscriber. He just asked me for money. Oh. And and I I sat there and I, I looked at it. And it's not the first time it's happened, but I sat there and I showed my wife. And, and she was like, why do they think that we're rich? I'm like, beyond that. What, what level of comfortability would you have to to contact a stranger and tell them, you know, I, I you know, I, I'm just going to I'm just going to tell you straight out. I need money. I need you. I need you to give me money and then spell my name wrong. 
and tell me how much you respect everything that I'm doing and and uh, you know you need money for tuition and and it's not that I don't mind helping, but I think that there's a there's a certain way to go about it. And, and I'm not trying to force people to be like me, but I just I don't know I just have, have a I have a general kind of bar that I put up there that I don't mind helping, but I like to help people that are helping themselves first. That makes me feel good because sometimes the blessing that I think I'm giving somebody may be actually a curse in the grand scheme of things because it only supports bad habits, bad spending habits, supports uh, uh, habits that maybe are working against them. I don't know what, I don't know if I'm uh, uh, supporting a substance abuse habit. You know, I don't know. I don't know what's going on because I don't know the person. And so it definitely has me be more patient and, and I'm working on my compassion even though when I get requests like that, I, my initial reaction is, you got to be kidding me. Like, there's no way. Because mm. <laughs> even at my lowest, I never got to a point where I felt comfortable asking someone, another man for, for, for money or anybody, any any person for, like, I, I need you to, get, no, I and didn't expect it either. I pull myself up on my bootstraps and I get it done. Uh, but once again, I don't, I'm not expecting everybody to be me. That thing, that's naive to even feel like that. Hmm. Do you think that for people in, in the music business, especially in the hip-hop end of it, are afraid to show their vulnerabilities and that can affect their, their anxiety levels and their um, happiness? I think that exists for sure. I, I think that Gen Z is going to be the inverse of that in that they're showing so much emotion that they haven't had enough time to observe it. They're very open. You know, the, the artists that they listen to are very open about their substance abuse issues. Right. They're very open about the depression. They sing songs about depression. They sing songs about suicide. They, they're very open about their vulnerability. They're looking at that as a strength. I knew things were shifting when I would, I would, I would like, you know, go to some of these schools and I would see who the alpha male was back when I was younger was the guy that was just the biggest guy, the guy that can beat everybody up. That was the alpha male. That was the bully. Now the alpha male is not the one that's physically uh, the strongest. The alpha male now is, is the most wittiest one. They hmm. honor wittiness more so in Gen Z is what I'm noticing. Yeah. Um, the one that's quote unquote, the most woke, the one that's the most aware, the one that's. So when I see the dynamic change, I'm realizing, yeah, that's good that this generation is more, open and more, uh, uh, you know, about their, their insecurities and their vulnerability. But sometimes pushing too far in that direction of vulnerability causes you to look for more material to inspire your music and not actually address the thing that is causing the depression. You know, what's the end of the story? Is there going to be a progression of the story? Um, how many, how many artists have we seen in the last two years in hip hop, newer, younger artists, that have died from substance abuse, oh, yeah. ODs. Oh, yeah. And the first thing that the fans are saying is not, I sympathize for his mother and the people who don't see this person as, as um, the artist. That's my brother. That's my, my son. That's my uncle. They don't see that. They're saying, oh, I won't have this music anymore. Right. And that, that part of it is something that I feel a responsibility because I feel like, I, I have such a wide range audience. Like I'm 35, but I have 
My youngest one I've seen is like 14, 15. The oldest one that I've seen that was actually part of my community was, was uh, I believe she was in her 50s. And so, you know, I, it's a wide range of people that see value in what I'm sharing. But I feel a responsibility because sometimes I think, you know, what if I could have talked to a young, just to use them as an example, a young Mac Miller. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I don't know what led to him inevitably overdosing or what he was going through mentally. But what if I could have talked to a young one, a young triple triple X tentacion? What if, what if I could have world. talked to a young Juice, Juice world. world? Juice, yeah. What if I could have talked to them through YouTube? Because it's it's so crazy to me when I meet these newer artists that blow up in the Internet and they tell me, I go to them like with all kind of respect and introducing myself. And they're like, I already know who you are. Like I watched you when I was first getting started. So now I'm that guy. I went from being the young guy looking at the the OGs to now I'm their OG. And it's it feels so weird to even see it from that perspective. But it also re- reminds me I have a responsibility not to parent the Internet, but to at least give them an opportunity to hear a different perspective that may very well change their trajectory. And that is so incredible. Thank you. And that is so needed and uh, admirable. One of the things that you talk about um, is flow state. I know this is something that's a subject you're very... (laughs) Which is related to everything we're talking about in terms of consciousness and meditation and and Mm -hmm. calmness and mental stability and all of that and inspiration and artistic creativity. Um, yes. Do you want to say a few words about flow state? Oh, yes, I do. Yes, I do. This is something that um, I had no idea would be something I would study for the last uh, two years. Something that I am in the process now of finishing up a course that, you know, I was I was watching a TED talk that led me down to a rabbit hole of books that I was reading uh, specifically by, uh, you know, uh, this uh, this journalist and one of the leading voices of uh, Flow State named Stephen Kotler. And um, seeing him talk about how the Flow State is hackable. The Flow State, for those who have never heard that or maybe kind of heard that, is that level of peak performance. And also it, it, it gives us peak enjoyment within our craft, within our performance. Whatever is the version of performance in your particular field or craft, it is that point where that inner voice is quiet. It's that point of stillness. It's that point of I'm working, but I'm not second guessing. I'm doing more moving than I'm even thinking. I'm moving before I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. And your mind is processes, processing all these little many decisions, these little small decisions at the same time in this lightning speed. And it's not just the product of when you have 10,000 hours of practice. That helps, of course, but it's the product of, you know, when we have a skill set, whatever your skill set is, and we take on a task that is below that skill set, significantly below, we get bored. When we take on tasks that are significantly above our current skill set, we get overwhelmed. When we just find a skill set, or excuse me, find a level of challenge that is one step above your skill set, that gets you into flow state. Getting rid of distractions gets you into flow state. Not overfeeding your body um, and making it work overtime and having to think about all these extra things. Uh, 
And during the flow state, something interesting happens. I talked about it earlier. The prefrontal cortex, the front part of your brain that is uh, in charge of making logical decisions, it's that inner voice that you hear that, you know, it, it can help you, but it can also hinder you because it's trying to make logic out of things that don't require logic, like making music and filling it out. There's not a logical reason why you take an 808 and you mangle it and then you shape it and then you take the tail end of it and you can make a kick out of it. Nothing logical about that. You can make some logic out of it, but that's not what it's about. It's about running with this feeling, running with this peak enjoyment, this peak state of performance. And a, a huge part of that, and I feel like meditation helped me get there, is this is a supreme amount of focus that happens generally 30 minutes into our focused work. I turn my phone off. I put it on airplane mode. I don't, nobody walks in. This is my time to give it extreme focus. And the thing about it is we've all experienced it, even in very minor things like cleaning up the house. You could be listening to music you love. And then something happens where <laughs> you got a mop out and somehow you've mopped. Somehow you have, you know, you got a trash bagged up somehow. You got the TV on mute. Somehow you got you you got your kids sitting down and they're eating their food. And somehow you have figured out how to like what I you know, for those who are old school video gamers, uh, you're like Super Mario when he gets that star and he's just he nothing can hurt him. He's in this crazy zone. That's what they call the zone or the runner's high. Um, that's what flow state is to me. I achieved that. And acknowledged it and understood what it was later on because I've cheated when I was you know younger. But when, but most recently, last year, after having a year long of what you know people call a beat block, and then when I tapped into it, I was mm -hmm. like, I wonder if there's a system that I used. Like I, I broke everything down. I was like, what did I eat? How much sleep did I get? Um, what did I do with my phone? Did I turn off my distractions? And so without even knowing the conditions that are required for a flow state, I was doing them as a producer. Now I'm in a place where my audience on YouTube has saw me, witnessed me be in my flow state. Every single time I sit down to create, because I'm a man of regimen, every single time I sit down to create, I have not changed my regimen, and they have seen me jump into my flow state, and I'm making the best music I've ever made. Another huge part of that, and that's the last part I'll say about this, is that I had to turn my music back into a hobby. After I went through that depression, that low point, I realized I don't want to use music as a way for me to make money anymore. Not in, not at least in the sense that it was before. I want to take it back to when I was just chopping up records, uh, working with a young Kendrick Lamar and a young Abso, and they were just loving me because I had these soulful samples and I was just a kid having fun. I wanted to have fun again, but I took away my only hobby that brought me joy and I made it my job. You know, we're, we're in a society now that that's the first thing they tell you. When you're good at something, they're like, you're really good at this. You should look into making it into a business. Make your money. And, you know, God bless this this rapper that uh, I, I've been following. He's like a mentor to me uh, named Bad Luck. Someone told him, sometimes you don't need to always monetize your joy. Sometimes it's the worst thing that you can do. And so I d I basically turned my music back into a hobby so I can fall back in love with it. In the terms of a marriage, we went to counseling. Me and me and my my, my married boo, music went to counseling. And uh, now, when people ask me, "Hey, hey, Curtis, let's work together," I, I, I'm on an artist strike. I'm on a producer strike. I'm not collaborating with anybody until me and my boo named Music can work on our marriage. So that's what's happening right now. Is that 
I've been working on my marriage. We've been getting to our flow. We got a flow going on. We got a flow state. And so uh, I just, now I feel like more of a marriage counselor than a producer when I talk to producers. I'm like, we just need to, we need to heal this thing that you committed to and uh, put it back in its proper place. But me, me literally just calling it a hobby and not being ashamed of calling my music career a hobby after 17 years uh, was huge because it took off so much pressure that was just unnecessary to be there. Yeah, and it's a pressure, I think, that everybody in music, no matter how esteemed you are, whether you're Prince or Kurt Cobain or Michael Jackson, you feel that pressure. It's hard to, to regain that first blush of romance with the marriage, right? Yes, absolutely. And here's sort of like, a, I guess, uh, uh, a perspective that may be unpopular because a lot of people, you know, they, they, they demonize their dark moments. I never want to go back to there, and that's my motivation. I never want to be treated like the person that treated me the worst. I, this, this took time, and I'm not, I don't expect anybody to just get there, but... I had to get to a place where I could appreciate the worst people that I've ever come in contact with. I could appreciate them being who they were. I could appreciate the lessons that were taught. And I really mean it when I say that, um, that I'm glad that they did what they did to me. I'm glad that I experienced that lowest part of depression. I'm glad that I had those moments where I didn't want to live anymore. I needed those because that is part of my testimony. I needed those because though, if I can give credit to myself for pulling myself out of that hole, I better be ready to give credit to the hole and whatever put me in that hole as well. Cause they're mm -hmm. just as, um, they deserve just as much credit as whatever I did to get me out of that hole. Right. They, they inspired me to say, I never want to see somebody get in that hole. And if they do, I want to help them. Right. So I got to be grateful for that. That balance is something that I think is one of my greatest achievements. Forget everything that I've done musically. That balance of life to be able to look at something and observe it without prejudgment and just to sit back and say, somebody says my, my music sucks. I used to get so emotional because I was hypersensitive to it. Now I'm a little bit still, you know, I still feel it, but I'm like, well, why would somebody say it sucks? Why, why would it? I mean, why, why would, you know, I'm, I'm want to know why I ask them why most people get defensive, but the ones who actually say why it sucks, they'll say things like, well, it doesn't really suck. I just wanted to get your attention or it, it, it you know, I just don't like your drums. Okay. That's fine. We look, we're two different human beings. We have two different sets of ears. That's cool. That's all right. I don't think that I have the universal sound that everybody should love. That's fine. I, we're good. So having that balance to me is probably my best achievement because it has, stop me from, you know, I was, a, I was a younger hothead and this has given me uh, so much more peace, especially in my real life marriage. <laughs> well, going back to what you said about contribution is one of the secrets of happiness that you learned. The contribution that you are making is so needed and so valuable. And again, you have so much truth and important things to say and thank God you have an audience that's listening and you know how to speak to them and I've learned a lot uh, myself talking to you and and listening to you I realize now that I have a beat block in my click funnel <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the term beat block uh, yeah I, I, I never realized that th that was my problem well, I, I don't. But before I even introduce that as a as a problem, I don't. I think that beat block is Santa Claus. 
I don't think there's a beat block. I think there is a that idea that we have a writer's block is built upon scarcity. Within us, we all have an abundance, an abundance of sounds, or at least an abundance of, of access to sounds, an abundance of, uh, uh, you know, uh, creative ways we can do the things we, we're consistently doing. I mean, you have worked, I mean, I, you know, you told me a little bit about your resume. You work with one of my favorite artists of all time in Prince. I love Prince's music to death. And, and my father, I thank him for exposing me early to that because to be using these eight, like the 808 drums that now are so popular, you know, amongst like trap music, for him to be using those in the 80s in the way that he did, using a drum machine, to be able to play 21 instruments before he was 19, to be able to do all these things and still sing and be able to mix himself and then develop acts outside of him. And for him to do all of that and then also be obviously a, a, a spiritual, spiritual being himself, it just, I look at those individuals like that, that just give me ultra inspiration to know that I can do more and I can do it all fluidly. So you having the attributes that you have and having the, you know, working with the folks that you've had and contributing to them in the way that you have, there's an abundance of experience that you've probably forgot more things than I even know. <laughs> That's how much information you've had, how much abundance you have. And so I tell producers, beat block doesn't exist. That's something that somebody, man-made concept, somebody made up. There's not a blockage of ideas. There's a depletion of energy. There's a focus that you are putting into another direction that has nothing to do with creation. Uh, Tony Robbins once said, where attention goes, energy, energy flows. Mm -hmm. And I truly believe that. I think mm -hmm. that if you put your energy into the idea that I can no longer come up with anything original, I can no longer create something that I like, then your mind and your body and everything else will align with that idea. Sure. So that's why I truly believe, like, you know, beat block is as real as ventriloquist dummies coming to life. That's just how <laughs> I look at it. I don't, it doesn't even exist. There's no way. Uh, I just need to figure out, beat block is not a music problem. I, I now look at music so sacredly, like I've never had before. This idea of practice. Uh, Stephen Pressfield said it one time in his book, uh, I think it was The War of Art. Um, uh, uh, the war of art. And he was saying how sacred practice is. Everything that we're doing in music and whatever we're doing is practice. Absolutely. Right? Practice. And okay, I'll give you an example. It's my favorite example because I love basketball. LeBron James is three and six finals history, right? Michael Jordan is six and oh. Every single championship they went into even taking the last shot, even all the preparation in the first year for the first championship was practice for the second championship. That championship was practice for the third one. So no matter what we are getting into, there is no such thing as game day. Game day doesn't exist. Game day is a concept that we build around when in all actuality, this is a marathon. This is not a sprint. This is a marathon. And if it's a marathon, that means that Although we may want to have our best performance here and we've done all the preparation to try to make that happen, it's not guaranteed. That's okay because this is practice for the next time that you come across that. So I look at that and, and when I saw that concept and realized how lucky I am to sit down and make music, especially during a pandemic when human beings have been told to stay at home, get away from your friends, 
wear a mask anytime you go outside, make it a, a huge inconvenience. And they've been told, do something with your time. And I feel so grateful, so lucky to sit down to these devices and keyboards that allow me to go to a world that I hadn't even known existed in my mind when I sit down and work on music. Four or five hours feels like 30 minutes. That is, for the people who are struggling to figure out what to do with their time at home, I feel for them. I sympathize for them. Uh, but that's why I feel like sit, never blame the. I can never blame the music anymore. I used to do that. Blame the music for a beat block. No, 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 no. That's, that's a personal issue. Music has nothing to do with that. I need to go identify what is it in my life that is depleting my essential energy to do what I love. What is it about my mind? Am I not meditating enough? Am I not spending enough time and healing, truly healing the things that is making me see the scarcity instead of the abundance that is in front of me? Uh, I tell producers that all I'm always on, especially the younger producers. They're like, music is the reason why. No, 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 no. Don't ever blame her. She, she's so, per she's so perfect. Don't ever blame her. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel exactly the same way about feeling gratitude to be able to do music. And the same thing, you know, three hours goes by and it feels like five minutes. Sure. And uh, that feeling of gratitude that we're doing this and we're able to do it. In so many ways, we're able to do it physically, mentally, financially, whatever it might be. So as we wrap up, we obviously covered a lot of ground. Is there anything that we left out before we leave that you want to you wanna say? Uh, just how grateful I am for this experience. I, I, you know, I know that I could be long-winded. I know that I can throw a lot of concepts at once. I, I just want, at the end of the day, to know if people don't know, um, my intent is what I'm really focused on. No matter what I get into, I truly believe how you do one thing is how you do everything. You know, I, I meet producers that are working a job that they don't like, they don't care for, they think it's hindering their progress creatively, and they can make a really good argument for why that is. But I always tell them, I say, how you do one thing is how you do anything. And if you, you know, if you, if you give half of your energy to you know, a task at your job because maybe it's boring or maybe it's, you know, unfair. Well, when you come across tasks that are boring and unfair in music, which you will when you make it your full-time career, that same energy is going to be applied and you have not, you have not solved that part of you that is shortcutting the, the very things that you should be giving your everything to. And so does that mean that you won't get burnt? No, you're going to get burned. But I never feel that because I always feel like, you know what, I am, I am, I get to change your I have to's to I get to's. This whole thing called life changes drastically. I get, I, instead of me yeah. saying, oh my God, I have to get up at seven in the morning. I get to get up at seven in the morning. Somebody didn't make it through the night. Um, I, I, man, I have to finish this mix. I get to finish this mix because mm. music is my full-time <laughs> career. That's great changes everything for me that's so, great that's my biggest thing i mean i got tons of things i guess i could promote and you know my publisher would probably be mad at me for not uh, sharing that i have a book that you can get from musicproducerpower.com um right now i'm knee deep into this new course that i can't really give too much details about it because i'm still kind of formulating everything but uh just know if you follow me on my social medias at curtis king with two s's on instagram or youtube curtis king tv You'll find me, and um, this is the kind of stuff we talk about all the time. I got 202,000 subscribers, which, you know, uh, for, for a lot of people, that's a lot. In my field, there's people who have 
quadruple that. Um, but I have so much more happiness knowing that I have the kind of people that are following there who are, you know, they're going through their own journey and they really value not just the music. They love the music, but they also value their mental health. And so if that's something that intrigues you, come join us over there. It's, it, it's a very rare thing to have a community like I do. It may not always be the largest numbers, and that's fine with me because it's quality over quantity. Come join us over there and uh, get more information as things go on. But I just, I just want to say thank you for giving me the opportunity uh, to share my story. You're very welcome, Curtis. Uh, as a matter of fact, thank you. It's been incandescent. All right, people, thank you very much for listening. If you've enjoyed this, please leave us a rating. Please give us some support. We'd appreciate it very much. And I also want to thank James Leno for making the connection. And I want to thank a new addition to the team, James Bianco. And, of course, I want to thank the Hannah Bowers. Until next time, I hope you can stay in a higher octave and let's you and I stay in tune.